Robots Radio. Games. Lore. Stories. Community. Just press play. short rest oh I see they said you'd be showing up about now come on through the portal best not keep the lore mistress and more master waiting you know how they get robots radio presents the Dungeons and Dragons lore cast the best way for everyone from experienced dungeon masters to those curious about D&D to learn more about the worlds, creatures, and lore of Dungeons and Dragons. Hello and welcome to the Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast. My name is Sergio. My name is Sean. And do we have some lore for you, dear listener? Uh, tell me, Sean, have you ever heard of a certain series called Dragonlance? Why, yes. Yes. Um, I had a lot of friends in junior high who read those books, and uh, they they always sold very well when I worked at Barnes & Noble. So, of course, Dragonlance, uh, Tracy Hickman, Margaret Weiss, the, the Hickman-Weiss dynamic duo, <laughs> they created... What for many is synonymous, like a world, a, a cast of characters, uh, a lore that is synonymous with Dungeons and Dragons. When so many people close their eyes and envision D&D, they envision the world of Dragonlance. And it was a lot of fun when Dragonlance finally came to 5th edition last year or the year before that. I don't know, time... Time is meaningless at this it's point. It's a flat circle, yeah. It was uh, it was a little over a year ago. I believe it was late 2022, if, I, if I'm if i not mistaken. But yeah, uh, time is a flat circle and meaningless in, in many ways. Um, and Margaret Weiss herself started writing uh, new Dragonlance books, the second of which has just been released um, uh, very recently. And uh, the trilogy ending, you know, they usually come in trilogies. Mm. Uh, the third one of the trilogy coming out soon. Um, but so we are going to discuss some Dragonlands. Now we've already dis- uh, we already discussed the War of the Lance um, a few months ago, uh, Mary and myself. But we wanted to dig into some of those characters more. So we want to talk about the lore behind the characters, and so. Um, Obviously, if you are interested in reading the Dragonlance books and you don't want to get spoiled, well, like a lot of this information comes from those <laughs> from those novels. Um, and so, uh, like I said, tread lightly, perhaps if uh, if you if you if you're one of those people who you know want to read the books, don't want to be spoiled. But otherwise, we're going to talk Sturm Brightblade in this uh, this episode this week. The the tragic hero of the War of the Lands, the the tragic hero of of Dragonlands. I'd say probably um, o- owns that title more so than any other character in in that canon. So Sturm, born in AC three twenty two, which AC meaning uh, technically Alt Cataclius. Uh, which is like the Latin version of after cataclysm, um, which is the cataclysm is, you know, world changing event that marks time. Born in AC 322. Um, as a reference, um, the events of Dragons of Autumn Twilight, which is the very first Dragonlance book, uh, though those events take place in 351 AC. So the uh, during the events of the original Dragonlance trilogy, Sturm is still 
relatively young, late 20s, early 30s. He's a relatively young man. So what kind of man was he? Well, Sturm uh, had the need to give of himself without thought of his own impoverishment. So in that in that sense, he is the universal brother prepared to sacrifice his life for, for mankind. You know, he's the universal sort of guy that you that's always gonna help you move, always gonna <laughs> always gonna be there for you. Always lend you a five spot. Exactly. Like, hey man, I need some, you know, I need some money to get me between now and payday. So I'm like, I got you. Even at the at his own expense. He's like, man. Right, right. I, if his own rent's gonna be late. Yeah. Right, right. He's like, my landlord is cool. He'll we'll figure it out. Uh <laughs> no landlord is cool, by the way. No, uh, no. <laughs> Sturb uh, is an ideal leader and manager, but refuses to admit he has limitations. So he's by no means perfect. He's He's got his flaws. Well, tragic heroes are supposed to have flaws. Exactly. Uh, he has a fine consideration for others and tends to be uh, romantic. Uh, as a result, he is both cooperative and sensitive. Uh, he loves embellishments, ceremony. Like that comes in part with, you know, him essentially being born and destined to be a knight. Uh, he tends to be cold and matter of fact, but he's also dependable and solid, and so he has a fine mind and is excellent company. So all in all, like a pretty good dude to have around. Man, can you imagine? That would just be the best thing to have in your obituary. He had a fine mind and was excellent company. Like, I mean, if, <laughs> if, if, if people are saying that about you after your death, you have won at life. If that's how I'm remembered, it's a, it's a life worth living. Yeah. Uh, so born to Angriff and Eilis, uh, also known as Anna Brightblade, Sturm was raised in the castle that shared his name, Castle Brightblade in Salamnia. The Bright Blades for generations had been knights of Salamnia. Knights of Salamnia being a knightly order, you know, think your stereotypical knights, knights in shining armor, King Arthur, that sort of thing. You know, these are chivalrous, you know, knights in the strictest sense of the word. <laughs> so undoubtedly, when the time came, Sturm was tutored, quote, in a manner befitting his noble bloodline and station. However, in 335 AC, right around Sturm's adolescence, there was some real French Revolution energy going around as peasants rose up against Castle Brightblade. Now, this event is known as the rebellion or the outcrying. The people were angry, essentially, had misguided anger because the knights could not stop the Kieses, uh, also known as the Dark Queen. And so a portion of the proletariat have turned against the knights of Salamnia, and they ended up torching several castles, including Castle Brightblade. You know, the reason for this, according to the rebels, was to be an example, an analogy of the troubles they themselves were having, as well as like taking a little something back from the order, from the knights that the rebels rightfully thought was theirs. You know, why should we be struggling? Why should we not have and you and you do sort of thing? Sure. Again, uh, uh, I guess sort of justified, justified anger, if not misguided. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like they were, they were having, I mean, if it's French Revolution energy, then people are starving and... Um, having a really hard time of it. Right, right. And so the Knights of Salamia obviously don't want to engage in combat with the people, even if their intentions and ideas were misguided, um, and at least in the opinions of the Knights. But, you know, they were still the same people the Order was sworn to protect. Uh, it was, so it was during this time that Sturm's father, Angriff, had his wife and son smuggled out of the castle for their own safety. Uh, mother and son eventually find themselves in solace. Sturm begins working under a scribe and begins to be raised by his mother to be proper, well-educated, well-read. Um, and obviously, being around his mom, he uh, also adopts her thick Salamic accent and as a result, kind of teased by the children in solace. You talk funny. 
I assume is the how kids and solace Can't sit here. <laughs> how kids and solace sound. <laughs> um, it's also here that he meets the brothers Majer, um, Raceland and Karaman, and their half sister Kitiara. So unfortunately, after a few years in solace, Eilis falls ill due to a plague and dies. Um, she actually it's like some real Mother Teresa type stuff going on. She is, there's a plague that hits um, Solace and she gets sick tending and taking and feeding those who are already sick. So you shouldn't like, help people. <laughs> so lesson learned, <laughs> shouldn't help people. No, no, that's, it's incredibly noble. Um, and so these, I mean, you know, his obviously like he is destined to be a knight. You know, he sees the example his father gave where he, uh, being a, a knight, living the life he led, he sees, you know, the way his mother passes away. You know, this is the, this are, these are the examples that, that Sturm, you know, the, the examples that Sturm sees and ex is expected to live up to. So nothing left for him in solace. Sturm returns to his homeland of Salamnia to pick up his training again as a knight. Growing up, his resolve to follow in his family's footsteps and become a knight becomes even stronger. He is determined to restore the honor and glory of the now blemished order. You know, you know, it's it's not just a it's not just a a quick you know flash of anger that these people um, feel toward the, the Knights of Salamnia. They steadfast believe you could not prevent, one, you couldn't prevent the cataclysm. Now you can't prevent this um, this darkness that is starting to spread over the land. Like, what good are you? Right. You know, this once noble order is now has a, not a bad reputation, but, you know, is it's definitely fallen from grace. So he goes on many journeys all over Kryn, learning about the knights and what became of his father. Unbeknownst to him at this time, his father is now presumed dead as a result of the rebellion. And this is a heartbreaking story. <laughs> um, after a betrayal at the hands of a fellow knight, the reinforcements that Angriff had been hoping for had been expecting, he realized they weren't going to arrive realizing that the situation was dire and that every man that's left in the castle is likely to die, Angriff is forced to make a bold decision. He surrenders to the rebels, which allows everyone left in the castle to escape. He does so without his armor and without the family sword, a bastard sword appropriately named Brightblade. Uh, oddly enough, it's said that he laughed the entire way along with, you know, going to the rebels and, and being let off. So that's, your... that's, that's pretty haunting. <laughs> it absolutely is. Um, and he was never seen again. And Griff was never seen again after that night. Um, after Sturm's return to Salamnia, he eventually challenges the knight who had betrayed his father a fellow by the name of Boniface Crownguard he challenges him to a duel. Uh, but being young and inexperienced, Sturm was no match for the much more proficient and accomplished knight, traitor even, as he was. Boniface Crownguard. What a name. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> sounds like somebody you want to kill in a sword duel. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like it's... He's, he, it's like the fantasy equivalent of the 1980s bully uh, in the the bully in like the 1980s, like ski movie. Right. Right. Who's like, yeah, the upper class, like, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Slime ball. Yeah. It, uh, but he doesn't kill Sturm. Does he, does he scar him? Does he mutilate him in any way? Uh, no, it's, I mean, it's a, um, it's uh, a duel, not to the death. Okay. Um, but yeah, Sturm is you know left to um, you know have to sort of lick his wounds, so to speak. Uh, meanwhile, the Majer twins have linked up with Tannis Half Elven and Tasselhoff Burfoot, 
the four of them befriend and sometimes kind of act as security for Flint Fireforge as he travels, you know, the the land to sell his goods. He's a, you know, a, he's a dwarf. He's got metal stuff to sell, you know, metal goods. And so you've you got uh, two brothers, two twin brothers, uh, a half elf and uh, Kender to act as security. You know, that's as any, as one would. Yeah, yeah, it's a solid crew. Uh, they become uh, they became known as the companions and eventually go their separate ways. They do, however, agree to reunite in five years' time at the end of the last home, and that's where the Dragons of Autumn Twilight, the first Dragonlance book, begins. So, that's also but between... a great title, Dragons oh, yeah. of Autumn Twilight. That's just oh, really lovely. It's absolutely. I mean, it's it's fantastic. I mean. You can see like, if if you are just now getting into D and D, and discovering all this stuff from the past, you can see like why it was so stinking popular. Like, it just have right. so many cool things about it. So between the companions splitting up and their reunion, what happens? So what happens in the in this five year period? What does Sturm get into? Well, Sturm and Kitiara, Kitiara Uth Matar. They get together and essentially go on a bunch of adventures. Uh, most of it, most of these adventures are detailed in the Darkness and Light novel. If you're interested in the details, um, we'll give you. A, we'll just give a quick, you know, Cliff Notes version. Um, you know, they travel by sea. They are rumored to have traveled to one of Crin's moons, the Red Moon. Uh, you know, all sorts of fun stuff. All sorts of you know, all sorts of adventures you would get into. Yeah, I. I mean. I would like to go to a moon. A, a red one. If, if yeah, yeah. If, at all yeah possible. if possible, if I get to pick. Um, They also got down and did the old hanky panky, or as it's known on Kryn, not the dragon lance, but the dragon dance. Hey, I, Mary, we miss you. I don't, we need the puns. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not a punsman, unfortunately. Uh, she's going to definitely, after listening to this, be in the Discord and come up with a thousand different like play on words. Like, why did you say this? Why didn't you say that? Like, I don't know because I'm not good at this. Um, but I don't, I don't bring this up to kiss and tell. That's not my style. Not that kind of. I'm a gentleman. Right. Yeah. You respect the privacy of fictional I, characters. I, I'm a gentleman of lore. Thank you. <laughs> uh, there is a very good reason for that, and yeah, and I'll get into it. Here in a, in a little bit. Um, so when Sturm goes back to Salamnia to search for his father, he's pretty shocked by what he finds. He has to sell his family's lands to cover the debts his father owed when he had disappeared. In fact, the in fact the only things that he's able to keep are the armor that his father had removed, you know, before he sacrificed himself to the rebels, and the bastard sword Brightblade. So, I mean, it's again, it's very very poetic in a way like all you have left are, are your father's armor and his weapon you have you have nothing left yeah yeah very um luke skywalker right right uh he discovers that a man named marinsard was behind the siege on castle brightblade uh and in fact uh marinsard almost kills him except for an arrow that uh kills marinsard right before He's about to land a killing blow on Sturm. Now that arrow was shot by Kitiara. Aw. I mean, you gotta save the life of your baby daddy, right? Insert I mean... bum 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 here. <laughs> yes, that's why I brought it up. She, uh, she was with child. She was with child when she shot this guy? Well, this is after they had done the dragon dance. But before the gotcha, before the baby is born. Okay. Right, right. Wow. Wow. Right. Um, so Owen Wilson. Wow. <laughs> so Sturm uh, has the armor. It's a bit big for him, but he you know wore it. You know wears it anyway. Assumes the role of a knight. Assumes the role of a knight. Like keep that in mind. He is not an actual knight. He if anything, he's a squire. He's playing dress up. Um, and as for Brightblade, he's a great swordsman, even though he wasn't nearly as good as his father. And like I said, this is what brings us to the events of the War of the Lance. And we'll get into a little bit of that in the second half of the show. Right now, we'll go to the middle of the show, do all the middle of the show stuff. 
and we'll talk to you here in a sec. Welcome to the middle of the show where we do all of the housekeeping stuff, all the midly stuff that we do in the middle of the show, which I mean, obviously it's so midly it can't be done in any other portion. Uh, this is where we thank our listeners, where we talk D&D news and see what kind of homebrew shenanigans we can get into. So first and foremost, thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you for supporting the show in that way. If you want to support the show in other ways, you can follow us on all of our different social medias. You know, it's hard to keep track of all of them, but Pretty much if you look on a social media platform at DND Lorecast, the letters D and D Lorecast, uh, you'll probably find us there. Um, and hopefully we'll start posting more often than not. Uh, you can also join our Discord. Discord is always on and popping. We're always having conversations there. We're always talking D&D and other tabletop role-playing games. And links to all of this are in the show notes, absolutely 100%. So if you listen to the show, if you follow us on all the socials and you still want to support the show as much as possible, then you can definitely do so by going to patreon.com slash Lorecast. We have our own Patreon there. We have tiers from $5 all the way up to $100 with all, cool, all types of cool benefits like ad-free episodes, early episodes, bonus content, merchandise, uh, invitations to the Tales from the Tower actual plays that we're doing, the patron roundtables. Uh, I will run a game for you for you and your friends or coworkers, family, whoever you want to, you know, play a game with. I will DM you. I'll DM a session for you. Uh I will join your own game uh for a session if if you want. It's 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 a lot of cool stuff. We built the Patreon with um with you know stuff that we would want if we were listeners of a of a show like this. So that's exactly like what we did. Um but extra special shout out to the newest members of the Patreon. I want to shout out uh Danny W William T and Brad P. Thank you so much for uh, for checking it out and uh, for joining. We appreciate it greatly. And as far as D&D news is concerned, uh, well, we have a brand new Forgotten Realms novel coming out next month, The Fallbacks. But in June, we've got a new Spelljammer novel. Yeah, that's right. We've got a new Spelljammer novel, Memories Awake by Django Wexler coming out June 4th. In this reboot of a beloved D&D setting, join Axia, a young woman with a mysterious past, as she embarks on a piratical adventure aboard a Spelljammer, a flying spaceborne vessel powered by magic. Uh, I mean, it's Spelljammer. I'm, I'm in 100%. Like, uh, I you know, am hoping it's fantastic. I'm hoping it's amazing because I love Spelljammer. So... I love I love the new direction that um or the I guess renewed uh direction that Wizards is taking with with D&D and they're starting to seem to make more novels which was a lot of the reason I mean we're talking Dragonlance this episode's a lot of the reason why so many people became fans and grew to love D&D is through the novels through the Dritz novels through the Dragonlance novels through Ed Greenwood's novels and so it's it's cool to see this. It's cool to see um, some more books. Speaking of Ed Greenwood, uh, a new game was just released for early access. It's a Baldur's Gate 3 style RPG. And uh, Ed Greenwood helped out with the world building. It's called Unforetold Witchstone. Uh, it's like I said, it's, it is in early access. Uh, some of the early reviews definitely um, you know, are indicative of that. But... I mean, Baldur's Gate 3 was in early access for years, and when it was finally officially released, it is obviously game of the year. So so uh, Unforetold Witchstone is set in a universe built by developer Spearhead Games in conjunction with Greenwood, whose Forgotten Realm setting has been one of the most beloved across all RPGs. We know that. So if you've played Baldur's Gate 3, if you're familiar with Faerun, you'll get you'll have you know some idea of what to expect from this game. So definitely check it out if that's sort of your bag. I um I didn't play Baldur's Gate 3 all through early access because I I didn't want to to, to play <laughs> I don't want to be a play tester. I didn't want to play it once it came out. And so but if you are definitely that kind of person, by all means check it out. You know, Ed Greenwood is a titan in D&D. Uh can't say enough good things about the man. So definitely check that out. And in terms of homebrew, I mean I 
I'd be, we're talking Dragonlance. We're talking Sturm Brightblade. I would be remiss to not once again suggest the Dragonlance Companion from Splinterverse. You can buy it on DMs Guild, uh, the digital copy for $19.99. You can get yourself a physical copy if you're a book goblin like I am. And it is well worth every penny you spent. It's almost 200 uh, pages. You've got oh, almost two dozen spells. You've got uh, 13 new subclasses. You've got um, nine new creatures, nine new monsters. You've got two full-on adventures, two fully written-out adventures, one of which, you know, insert plug here, we are running as our first Tales from the Tower adventure. The guys from Tabletop Journeys wrote it. If you are planning or thinking of running a Dragonlance campaign, you cannot afford to not have the Dragonlance Companion on your table. It is 100% worth every penny that you'll spend. It's got four and a half star rating. It is fantastic. The folks from Splinterverse have also done Feywild Companion, Fizbin's Vault of Draconic Secrets. Those are fantastic as well. It's it's quality work. I guarantee it. I, I own it. I love it. I use it. Listen to Tales from the Tower last week's episode to get a taste of what to expect from the quality of it. And, and yeah, so links to everything that I've discussed are in the show notes. Let's go ahead and get back to the show. Ah! Welcome back. We're discussing Sturm Brightblade, the tragic hero of Dragonlance. When we last left Sturm, Noah, so <laughs> we're at the events of the you know original Dragonlance Chronicles trilogy. The War of the Lance. Um, so again, if you, like I stated at the top of the show, if you are going to read these books, if you don't, if you do not want to be spoiled, um, we're going to. This is pretty spoiler heavy. Like we're not going into a, you know, a plot, you know, by point by point plot synopsis. Um, we cover the War of the Lance in general pretty extensively um, when the Dragonlance Fifth Edition came out. Uh, Mary and myself. So we're not going to rehash that. We're simply going to go through um, what happens with Sturm and then kind of discuss the whole archetype that that um, that he encompasses, that of the tragic hero. So again, if you want to remain spoiler-free, if you want to read these novels, which I highly recommend you read them. And here, at least for me personally, uh, when it comes to spoilers, um, I have found that if the story is effective, um, unless it's a complete twist, you know, the, you know, like sort of like the sixth sense where, right. um, you know, the, the spoiler is you know, much of the point or like the twist is much of the point. Right. Um, if it's merely like, you know, what happens in the plot, uh, I've found that if the, if the story is effective, like spoilers don't really matter. You know, I've, I've been spoiled. I, I've, I've known the plot of a lot of stuff like, um, we're Sean and I were discussing this just recently, uh, the dark tower series. You know, Sean had mentioned when the when the seventh book came out, when the the novel The Dark Tower came out, he said the ending was like a gut punch, and asked me like, "Do you want to know what it is?" And I was, and he's like, "Well, I don't want to spoil it." I'm like, "I'm probably never going to read those books, so tell me anyway." Well, I ended <laughs> up reading those books, but the story is so effective. I you know you fall in love with the characters that you know the ending was still a gut punch to me. It's still, yeah, you know, it was it was it did what it was meant to do, and so I feel like I again like I the to bring this all around i feel that the 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 dragonlance chronicles the first three books especially is exactly that you know the story is effective the character you'll fall in love with the characters so even if you know what happens in the end you will it'll still be as effective so but again but if you do not want to be spoiled like i said um tread lightly maybe um maybe read the books and then come back to this episode, this part of the episode, (laughs) but we're going to discuss, we're going to discuss uh, what happened. So uh, the events of autumn dragons of autumn twilight begin, you know, the war of the lance, the battle against the dark queen, Dekesis. Um, Sturm is nearly 30. He's got a big old bushy mustache. um, That's um, very um, in keeping with, you know, a a knight of Salami, a a Salamic man, essentially. It's sort of like um, their style. Uh, he's wearing full plate mail armor. Yeah, he's got bright blade, this giant bastard sword that he swings around. Like he looks like a knight of Salamnia. 
then everyone sort of believes it. You know, he's got the armor, he's got the sword, he's got the bushy mustache. Uh, <laughs> Nurm sort of lets them. He doesn't really correct them. The truth comes out eventually, however. And so really quickly, um, at one point, a collective dream is had by several of the several members of the companions. And in this dream, Sturm is killed by one of the evil dragons, a, a green dragon by the name of Cyan Bloodbane. Um, and uh, essentially before the climactic battle in Dragons of Spring Dawning, the, the final book of the trilogy, Sturm is finally actually granted knighthood. He becomes an official knight. Um, he becomes an official knight of Salamnia. And in fact, leads a group of knights in that battle, in that climax battle. And he is killed. He is killed in battle. He's slain by his former lover, Kitiara, who at this point is um, under the guise of the Blue Lady. Uh, she had given into her darker nature and had begun serving Verminard and Dekesis, the, the, you know, the, the bad guys, essentially. Um, but he sacrifices himself to give his companions time to um, to save the day, essentially, without getting bogged down in too many of the plot holes, you know, the dragon orbs and all this and all that. Um, <laughs> he allows himself, you know, he sacrifices himself, allows himself to, allows himself to die, to let his let good win, to let good win the day. Uh, his body is buried beneath the high clearest tower with a piece of beautiful elven jewelry known as a star jewel, uh, his father's armor, and of course, bright blade. And his fellow companions, Flint and Tasselhoff, uh, respectively added a carved wooden rose and a single white feather. So, tragic hero, Sturm Brightblade. Uh, his arc is probably the in my opinion the best in Dragonlance which is why I wanted to start off with this character <laughs> because um it's I mean going back to I mean it's 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 an archetype for a reason it goes all the way back to like Greek mythology to like Oedipus and stuff like that and then it even it goes we have modern examples like Anakin Skywalker right um, yeah, I'd say our our generational touchstone for a tragic hero. Right, right, and um, there's um, in a in a future book, uh, Raceling, uh, he mentions to Sturm's son that he has with Kitiara. Uh, he mentions that the entire time, pretty much, that he knew his father, he was not a knight. Like I said, he's knighted pretty much right before his death. And racing brings up the point like this, this whole time he isn't even a knight and yet he's living by this code. Not that, you know, not that it's, it's put upon him, but that he is accepted on his own. And so Raceling's, you know, opinion on that is like, it's, it makes him more of a knight than anyone. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's sort of, um, I guess the uh, a comparison there might be like Rey in the Star Wars sequels, how she sort of takes up this mantle of like being a Jedi, even though, especially in The Last Jedi in the second movie, where um, Luke Skywalker is basically like disowned the Jedi Knights and wants nothing to do with the Force anymore. And she's sort of trying to live up to this code, although she doesn't really understand what it means or, you know... Um, but like has taken it on herself to try and carry that legacy forward. Well, I mean, it, it's like the Knights of Salami. They had fallen in, in disgrace. You know, they, you know, much like the Jedi had, um, you know, no one really believes in them anymore, except this one person who wants to restore that honor and that glory. Right. Exactly. And so Margaret Weiss, Tracy Hickman, they had decided, you know, even before, you know, like while they were putting this trilogy together, um, that, you know, Sturm was going to die, that that was his arc, you know? And, and so, you know, they claim, you know, they, they claim that there was a huge outcry, you know, when, when Dragons of Spring Dawning came out, you know, that, that some readers felt that they like killed him all willy nilly. And they, you know, <laughs> they are steadfast. They, they, they did not kill Sturm arbitrarily. And they said that in fact, like while writing that scene that they, they wept. I mean, that's, I mean, it's, 
so sad. <laughs> I mean, you've got this guy who was trying to his entire life, you know, live up to this ideal, you know, and and sort of bring back this idea of honor and chivalry to a world that is shrouded in darkness and to the point of giving his own life. And it's, I mean, he follows in his father's footsteps. His father did the exact same thing. You know, he had a group of men left in the castle. They're all going to die unless he sacrifices himself in order to let them live. Right. And so, I mean, if you know that, then you can, and so like, I guess, you know, to quote Freddie Prince Jr., like it's, you know, read your mythology. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> if you if you know the fate of his father, then you can, you know, from Jump Street, from the very beginning, you, you should know what's going to happen to Sturm. I mean, yeah, it's um yeah, it's it's like you said, it's mythology. It's um it's how the archetype usually functions. I mean, um and I think it's a probably a testament to the character. Uh, and the characterization and what a good job uh, Weiss and Hickman did that people were so angry uh, that the character died. Like, I think that that's a, um, like you, you read about similar things. Um, I remember when, you know, um, when Marvel would kill off beloved characters, like when Gwen Stacy died, like there was this huge outcry, you know, uh, among readers of Spider-Man because like they loved this character and right. they just couldn't believe that she was gone. Um, uh but I mean, and I don't know that the decision-making process behind Gwen's death was as um, well thought out or as planned, you know, but, but just in terms of like reader reaction. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting um, that, yeah, that I guess that you might expect anything else for that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess in a lot of stuff, like you've got like Lord of the Rings, right? Where, Everybody except Boromir pretty much lives, you know? Right. Um, right. So I guess if you're used to that sort of, you know, everything kind of works out for the heroes in the end, um, especially if you're a young reader, um, that could be like one of your first, you know, brushes with like, actually war takes a toll like, and, and people which, die. Yeah. I mean, like Dragons of Spring Dawning came out in 85, which is just a decade uh, 11 years after Dungeons and Dragons was created. So, you know, most, I would say most of the people reading that book are either kids or adolescents, young adults. So yeah, so I, a lot of them would, like you said, that is their first brush with not, you know, things always not turning out, you know, sunshine and roses. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great point that, you know, there are, there are tragedies in war. There are casualties of war. And yeah, so oftentimes it's like the the characters we care about, but in the in the uh, in Sturm's case, it was almost fated to happen. So, but I mean, and, it's good. Go ahead. I was just going to say that's an that's an interesting idea too. This idea that it's fated, like, um, does that soften it? Does that make it better or like? I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like as far as like how it hits you as a reader or just a fan of the lore, um, like does the fact that it seems almost predestined make it easier to take that he has to die? Because like, it's like, oh, this is my purpose. You know, like the, I, I think that a lot of religion, um, and I, I think a lot of religion is rooted in the idea that we want to make things make sense. Right. Right. Um, you know, and that same with mythology and storytelling is also, I think comes from that same basic impulse. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, it sounds like, like if that's your purpose, if that's what you were born to do in a way, like that sort of takes some of the sting out of it. Right. Like, I, because there's something noble in, achieving the purpose um right because unlike say oedipus who comes to a bad end and really doesn't like there's nothing particularly noble about what happens to oedipus <laughs> you know what i mean like it's it's a pretty big bummer um whereas this is more like i don't know maybe it's more like hamlet you know where like at the end he comes back 
and he gets it right. He kills his uncle, you know, and he dies too, but like he does the thing he was supposed to do. Right. Like he is charged with, you know, avenging his father's death. He does that at the, you know, cost of his own life. Right. Which, you know, makes him the tragic hero, right? You yeah. know, he um and and in doing so also uh was it as a Penelope? Um you mean Ophelia? Ophelia, that's it. Yeah. Oh yeah, she dies too. <laughs> yeah. Poor Ophelia. And what makes it even all the more tragic is the fate of Ophelia, who ends up, you know, taking her own life throughout the course of, you know, all these machinations, right? And so like I don't know, I don't know if it takes the the sting out of it. Um, you know, like I said, if you are familiar with mythology, if you're familiar with the archetypes, if you kind of know the moves, you can kind of see like, you know, and like I said, like me reading this as a as a kid probably wouldn't have picked up on that. I probably would have been just as upset. Uh <laughs> right. But, you know, knowing, you know, the story beats and mythology and and what I do now, yeah, I would have recognized like, oh, Sturm, Sturm is the stoic, tragic hero. Like this is Sturm isn't going to make it more than likely. Um, right. And you and you see that um, like you saw that against Stranger Things, the, the latest season of Stranger Things with Eddie Munson. Oh, yeah, Eddie. I mean, everyone uh, on social media was like, you know, they're they're setting Eddie up to die 100 percent. Like people right. can see that because, you know, like. You know, we kind of like we now know the the moves behind stories and all that. Right. And we didn't want it to happen, but it still did. Yeah. And it's dramatically effective, even though we can kind of see it coming. Like, no, the, yeah. the story makes the right moves to make it dramatically uh, satisfying when it right. happens. Right, right. And Which it... I, I feel is definitely the case here with Sturm. You know, he he had a, a role to play. He had a part to play. And, you know, like I said, I, whether it's fate, whether it's um, just something else, I feel like had he not died, had he not, he wouldn't have, he, he has his archetype of the tragic hero throughout the entire trilogy. And so then to not have that, I don't want to call it a payoff, but to not have <laughs> that, you know, that, that ending, you know, that, um is you know linked to a tragic hero i feel would have been ineffective it would have been dramatically unsatisfying yeah yeah it, it's sort of interesting i'm sitting here also thinking about like times whenever they do sort of undercut that like um the best example i can think of right now is um forrest gump you know the lieutenant dan character who believes he's a tragic hero and right. that he's supposed to die and instead he has to live um, and he has to like come to terms with that, which is also really dramatically interesting in a way. But um, I, I I don't think that probably would have been the right move for this particular story. But um, you can do interesting things with that narratively. Like it's no, not yeah, like absolutely. it always has to follow the. Um, but it sounds like Weiss and Hickman absolutely did the right thing here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like you know, and that's Sturm Brightblade is at least like you know, and and I mean, he's probably my one of my favorite characters. Definitely one of one of my favorite characters in the Dragonlance canon. Maybe my favorite. It's it's hard to say. <laughs> um, but at least in the Dragonlance lore, is you know one of the exalted heroes of the land. You know, on on par with you know Humus, who um, who was one of the first. You know, like who um, killed the Takesis the first time she was around with with the Dragonlance. You know, he's he's heralded as I mean, he's our you know, he would be our um George Washington or our um well, I don't know who else are our heroes. <laughs> Washington's a good a good example. Yeah, he's he's Lincoln. something Lincoln that's a better example, I think. Yeah, Lincoln. <laughs> um yeah, he's he's um something pointing back to a maybe not a better age, but it definitely a, a more noble idea. Um, and something about that, that, that purity too is like narratives awful often sort of have to 
it it's hard for that character to kind of make it through to the other side unscathed when they're sort of an example of the shining beacon of the past. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, and yeah. And you know, Raceline also had mentioned to to his son to Sturm's son Steel, you know, when he said like, you know, he was more of a knight than anyone. He mentioned like he like got on my nerves. He was always like sort of preaching and kind of like holier than thou. I mean, he was like a knight in the strictest sense of the term. You know, he was like, you, you saw things in black and white, no shades of gray, you know, good and bad. And so, you know, that, like you said, the, to go from, you know, to live in a world of grays with that mindset, like you're probably, someone's going to reach out and touch you probably. And <laughs> yeah. you're probably not going to make it. Um, but it's, you know, like you said, it's, um, you know, it, it appeals to a sort of sensibility of like, you know, like I said, an older time where like where we could possibly like just look at things as as good and evil or, you know, they're as a binary rather than, you know, all these shades of gray, like, you know, with all this nuance. It's like, no, like you're a, you're an evildoer. Like right. you need to be dealt with. I'm a good guy. I'm going to deal with you. Yeah. So Sturm, yeah, and, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. No, you're good. You're good. Go. I had nothing. I had nothing. Go. <laughs> so Weiss and Hickman, you know, that they have explained. Um, and if you're interested in, there are actually annotated versions of uh, the Dragonlance, the original Dragonlance trilogy you know, with, you know, notes from Weiss and Hickman, uh, definitely pick those up. Those are very cool to have. Um, and they've explained that, you know, throughout the first couple of books of that series, um, that there were, you know, several factions within the Knights of Salamnia, all sort of uh, jockeying for, for position, jockeying for control. And as a result, you know, they're unable to form a cohesive unit and in order to prevent the spread of you know of evil across the land and so Sturm's sacrifice his his um his willingness to give his life for his friends so so they could win the day is sort of a catalyst for all of this internal struggle and you know he used um is able to galvanize the knights you know to coalesce into one cohesive unit that's so cool <laughs> i mean that's and um i believe it was hickman uh i read this that he had read some some story some mythological story about um like a, a general seeing an, an arrow flying toward him and knowing like i can step out of the way and save my own life or i can let it you know plunge into my chest kill me and my army will be so galvanized by my death that they will win the day. And he allows himself to die. Yeah. Yeah. Again, mythology is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> again, like that, that brings it back to um, the last Jedi where uh, Luke Skywalker basically sacrifices his own life to sort of give that spark, you know, and that legend starts spreading. Um, you know, to, to give the rebels essentially time to get off planet before they're all wiped out. Um, but also the story of him doing that seems to galvanize because that the very, the last scene of the movie is those kids on a different planet across the galaxy telling the story, right. you know, and being inspired by it. Um, like picking up a stick and pretending, it, pretending it's a lightsaber. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love that movie. Um, <laughs> so essentially yeah. The Last Jedi is... Uh is a story inspired by the events of the Dragonlance Chronicles. I mean, there I'm seeing a lot of parallels. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, Ryan Johnson see reads the Dragonlance Chronicles like I got a great idea for a movie. <laughs> um but no, I mean like it it works because you know like these are archetypes, these are the whole like Joseph Campbell uh, hero's journey, like these sort of big mythological moves, like these sort of like stories that are for some reason or another ingrained in our DNA, they just make sense to us as a, as a people. And Weiss and Hickman took that archetype 
injected it into their trilogy to amazing results. Like I said, Sturm, arguably my favorite character in Dragonlance because of the the tragedy of it, because, you know, it's like I said, it's an ideal to live up to, like a man willing to sacrifice his life for the greater good. I mean, yeah, that's about the the highest noble, like the most noble thing you can aspire to really, you know, the most noble thing you can do with a life, right? Um, you yeah, know, to, in a, in... to do good and inspire others to do good. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we're going to be covering uh, all of the companions over the next few months, uh, covering about one one a month or so, because uh, I I we haven't jumped back into Kryn since the fifth edition Dragonlance came out, and I've just I've been chomping at the bit to do so. So we're gonna I think next month we're gonna talk some Flint Fireforge. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, but next week we'll be back with um, Mistra, the goddess of magic. And um, I have a lot of more fun stuff for you. Um, if you haven't checked it out already, we have the first episode of our actual play, the Tales from the Tower. Very excited. Um, that's been in the pipeline for so long, wanting to do that, getting prepared to do that. Uh, check it out. Give us some uh, constructive criticism. Uh, we only hope to get better with it. So, uh, But yeah, we're going to keep doing lore. We're going to start doing more actual plays. We're going to have more D&D Lorecast Presents uh, episodes with content creators. We've got um, some cool stuff in the pipeline for that. It's uh, going to be a big year for D&D Lorecast. I'm excited. I hope you are too. My name is Sergio. My name is Sean. Fare thee well, dear listener. And until we meet again, may all your 20s be natural. Thank you for listening to the Dungeons & Dragons Lorecast. If you've enjoyed the show, consider following us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at DD Lorecast. Or jumping into the Robots Radio Discord to chat more with us about Dungeons and Dragons. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to a Robots Radio podcast. Smart shows. For interesting people, check out all the shows at robotsradio.com.